Well, as I said, I'm sure David did a good job uh, leading in. This week we are looking at the first uh, of a number of chapters, seven to be exact, uh, that will go through uh, all of the writing prophets uh, in, in, the, in the Bible. Uh, <clears throat> we're looking today at the earlier 8th century, uh, upper, you know, you know, to round it off, 750 to 797 uh, BC. Uh, to review a little bit, uh, the ministry uh, of Israel's writing prophets, those that we find actually written out in prophecy form in the Bible, uh, covered approximately 350 uh, to 400 years. Uh, and it's shaped by three key moments, which should have been where David ended the lesson last week. Uh, three key moments in the nation's experience. First is the exile of the Northern Kingdom in 722 BC when the Assyrians uh, came down on them. And that is the point where nine and a half tribes of Israel basically disappeared. Uh, they were dispersed, uh, really never to regroup, never to have a territory of their own again. Uh, the half tribe, by the way, is uh, Levi. Uh, both the northern tribe and the southern tribe needed priests. Those were the Levites. Uh, they never had any territory of their own, and so uh, it, roughly the half of the Levite tribe that was dispersed uh, has not been... I mean, people have looked for, studied. I mean, they're still digging. They're, they're looking, but uh, I, I'm, you know, so far we don't know exactly what happened to them. The, the second major event was, of course, the exile of the southern kingdom, Judah, to Babylon in 586 BC. That was Judah Benjamin and the other half of the tribe of Levi. And then, of course, uh, the restoration uh, of the people they, when they were called back from exile, uh, which began in 536 BC. So the, yes. Uh huh. I. That's a question I should be asking you. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, th this is this is essentially kind of a history lesson today. And I know David, Pastor David, is a big, uh, you know, Bible historian. Uh, but I was counting on Travis to fill in in his stead, and instead he's going to try to bait me. Uh, are, are, will they come back into the land? What? I don't know what land. You know, uh, you, you mean the 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 land, the 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 promised land. Well, I, I'm, I'm, sh I'm sure, huh? Oh, good. Well, good. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Yeah, no thanks. Uh, the, pardon? Yeah, maybe maybe you should uh, just just boot me off the stage anytime you like. I'm sure some of them have, but I mean they dispersed, they intermarried. Uh, some maybe did not. They just lived elsewhere. And I'm sure yes, I there's no doubt in my mind that some of those nine and a half tribes are probably back in the land. What's going to happen in the future and where the rest of them are? 
you're right. Better better men than I are studying that and haven't come up with no have come up with no answer so far. All right. So uh, the the first series, and we're going to deal with the uh, five books that you see that has the line beside them. Uh, as I said, seven chapters. We're gonna we're gonna first of all group the first five. Uh, then we're going to go to Isaiah uh, and Micah, then Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah. So those are three chapters. Uh, Ezekiel and Daniel, who prophesied during the exile, they each get their own chapter in the, the book that we're using. And then the prophetism during restoration, uh, Haggai and Zechariah uh, are grouped together. Uh, if you've read Zechariah, you know that it's kind of apocalyptic literature. It's, it's like reading Revelation or pieces of Daniel, uh, distinctly different from Haggai. And then Malachi, uh, actually quite a bit of time passed between the end of Zechariah and Malachi. Uh, Malachi wrote the end of the fifth century, uh, and it, it, he's billed to, is, uh, you know, the old covenant's final word. So it, the map we'll get to in a minute, by the way, at the bottom, is a list of all the writing prophets with the best guess. Some are fairly accurate, some uh, are not because they're hard to date as we'll discuss today, but that table at the bottom lists them from uh, the oldest to the most recent. Uh, you'll notice, by the way, that uh, out of all those prophets, two of them, only two of them prophesied to the Northern Kingdom. And we'll talk about those today. Those are Amos and Hosea. Uh, Jonah and Nahum prophesied to Nineveh, and all of the other ones uh, were either focused on Judah or the body in exile. Uh, just as an aside, in Acts 7.42, Stephen, who we would probably agree was speaking by the inspiration of God, uh, introduces a quote uh, from Amos chapter 5 with the words that, and he says, as it is written in the book of the prophets. So in addition to studying where the nine and a half tribes went, there's also this ongoing uh, study, discussion, opinions as to whether uh, the book, the, the 12 books of the minor prophets were essentially uh, one book. Uh, not something that we want to discuss today, but you know, if you've ever noticed the, in, the seeming inconsistency uh, again, if Travis wants to dive in on that one, that's great, but I can't answer it. Uh, I'm not quite sure, honestly, why Robertson in this book takes them in the order he does, because uh, it's clearly not the order that they are in Scripture, and then, of course, we have to discuss uh, which copy of Scripture uh, are we talking about. So let's uh, take a look, and, and again, this is reminiscent of when we went through the Bible and did a synopsis of, of each book. Uh, it's just that we're going to group them together and, and do them a lot faster. So uh, a good review, I hope, for all, uh, all of us. The early, yes? I You did. I made another mistake. Yeah, we'll talk. Yeah, I know. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about, yes, they are. Well, You would know better than I, but yes, there there are there are you know Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible and you know, the Septuagint, yeah, basically the same writings, basically different orders. So, 
we're we're do you? Well, we're we're assuming that the order was not divinely inspired, just the writings. Okay, very good. So the earlier eighth century, uh, when these gentlemen, <laughs> uh, never mind. Uh, when they, when they started writing, this was a period of great prosperity for both the northern and the southern kingdom. This was a height. This was more or less the peak of their territorial expansion and the prosperity under uh, Jehoash and Jeroboam. Jeroboam uh, was in the, the northern kingdom, and that's largely what we're focused on uh, this morning. Just to, just to give you an example, for instance, of why... Um, there was such great prosperity as they had, they had a lot of, th within their, their territory, there were a lot of things that at that time could not be found elsewhere. Uh, if you know where the town of Haifa is in, in uh, Israel, it's directly west of the Sea of Galilee on the coast. And at that point, it was the only place in the known world where they made blue and purple dyes. And if you remember, uh, when they were making the vestments for the priests, when royalty wanted to be set apart, um, that was the only place that those dyes were made, and they were made from some little mollusk of some sort, some little snail coming out of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and I guess they just really, really, really raked in uh, the resources from, from that. Um, but let's, let's start with, uh, and by the way, it's called Shikmona, and now it's called Haifa. Uh, again, it's, it's kind of like Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh, I guess, is right on the outskirts of Mosul, and we all would have heard uh, a lot about Mosul during the Gulf Wars. Uh, who knew that Nineveh at one point laid buried uh, right next door to it? So uh, let's start with Hosea. Uh, Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom uh, during the reign of Jeroboam. Uh, he was one of only two prophets that wrote from the northern kingdom. So uh, a lot, you know, very few prophets wrote to Israel. Uh, one that we'll talk about actually lived in the southern kingdom, but was writing to the northern kingdom. Of the two that wrote from the northern kingdom, one was Jonah, and he honestly really didn't write so much from the northern kingdom. He was he was just from the northern kingdom, and of course he went to Nineveh, as we'll talk about. The time that Hosea was writing was roughly the same time that. Isaiah and Micah uh, were from the southern kingdom uh, pretty much telling Judah uh, what was about to happen to them. And if you remember the story of Hosea, Hosea was commanded by God to take Gomer uh, as his wife uh, and have children with her. Uh, what, what that was supposed to highlight uh, was the fact that the, the nation of, of Israel was being unfaithful uh, to the covenant Lord, and it was just a very stark illustration uh, of that point. You remember when we went Hosea, over Hosea, uh, this was Rob's dad's favorite book, and so Rob fills in the color commentary uh, on Hosea. So the overarching themes uh, of Hosea, uh, God as the marriage Lord of Israel, Hosea uh, mirroring that, uh, when it came to Gomer, uh, the people at the time cared much more for what they had. Remember, it was an area of great prosperity. We all tend to become a little complacent when we're not worried about things financially and otherwise. So they cared a whole lot more for the gifts. Uh, but because things were coming relatively easily, they didn't focus so much uh, on the giver. Um, 
Gomer uh, goes her own way as the nation of, of Israel did and Hosea was commanded to reclaim her uh, and illustrate very vividly how God has reclaimed uh, his covenant with Israel. So the, and the message in Hosea uh, ends with uh, the promise of actually, not, not the actual return, but the promise uh, of a return to a fruitful land uh, which the people had lost because of their complacency uh, and their worship uh, of false gods. Uh, interesting in Hosea chapter 6, if you remember when we were studying covenants uh, earlier uh, this year, we talked about the covenant of works. Uh, again, because of the uh, study that goes on, there, there, was, uh, there are those who suggest that the covenant of works really was not a covenant. Some suggest that all the elements of the covenant are not present. No, but when Hosea writes in chapter 6, this is frequently, and I think Travis mentioned this a couple weeks ago, uh, there is a verse in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, where he reinforces, actually uses uh, the word covenant when he's, re when he's uh, referring to Adam's failure uh, to be obedient to the word of God. All righty. Uh, Amos, Amos is the only other prophet uh, besides Hosea to write uh, to the northern kingdom, but he's writing from the southern kingdom. He actually lived in a town about 10 miles southwest of Jerusalem, uh, and, and who knows why, because, I mean, God commanded him, I guess, or called him uh, to focus on the northern kingdom, uh, even though uh, he didn't live there. Uh, he announces the coming judgment on all of Israel's neighbors. And if you flip back to the map, uh, it, it didn't copy as well as I would have liked, but the, the left edge where you stop seeing things and you can see all the towns going up, uh, that's the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and so what I've circled uh, are some of the areas that Amos addressed. Uh, some are areas or territories or you know, kind of countries, if you will. Uh, some are, are like city-states, um, and so I circled them all. Damascus, uh, obviously a town up in Syria. Uh, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, uh, and Judah. They completely surround Israel. Uh, what, and, and most of them, by the way, now exist in what is, uh, what would be Israel, Lebanon, and Syria. Um, it's not that he lets obviously he's writing to the northern kingdom so he doesn't let them off the hook uh, he just says oh yeah all these people are going to get what's coming to them too uh, but then Amos proceeds to issue probably in all of the books the most scathing uh, indictments uh, against Israel and makes it very clear that they are going to be dispossessed of their land and driven into captivity uh, the ministry of exile is new, starting with these prophets, uh, compared with earlier, uh, what they call non-writing or non-literary prophets, you know, uh, Elijah, Elisha, Samuel, pe people who were clearly prophets, but they didn't, they didn't write. They, we don't find books in the Bible that delineate their prophecy nearly as clearly. Uh, in Amos chapter 3, uh, it says, Hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family 
that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. So in other words, the people of Israel had a special status because those are the ones that he freed from captivity in Egypt and brought into the promised land. Uh, they of all people should have been obedient, uh, contrite, uh, and, and they weren't. And so because they knew, they, they were not uh, unknowingly disobedient, unknowingly worshiping other gods. They knew exactly who God was and what was expected of them, and they walked away from him, and so they were going to be judged, uh, according to Amos, much more uh, harshly. So Amos, not until the end of chapter 9, does he halt the tirade. So the first, the first nine, better part of nine chapters, Amos just lays Israel and the other surrounding areas out. He, he, is, he is pretty much relentless. But at the end of the last chapter, he does halt his tirade, and he provides what is a certain hope. After, after he's told them everything that's going to happen to them, he said, but do not you're going to have to go through this. Actions have consequences, but there is hope for you, and I'll tell you exactly uh, what it is. And he's basing this on all of the covenants, but pr primarily the Davidic covenant. And so in 9, chapters 14 and 15, he says, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Uh, some people rely heavily on this to you know, explain why given everything that has happened to Israel, uh, you know, I was gonna say during our lifetime, uh, during some of our lifetimes. Uh, but, you know, Israel has, by worldly standards, defied uh, the odds uh, numerous times. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, this happened prior to the 20th century also, but they're still there. They may be being chipped away at. And this is, this is the kinds of verses that some people rely on that saying uh, Israel cannot will not be defeated until you know, it's God's good timing. Uh, it's also why, you know, if you're getting into political theory, why a lot of people suggest that we should think twice before we turn our backs as a nation uh, on Israel from a political standpoint. Uh, James used this great reconciliation uh, to make the case in Acts 15 for including the Gentile people uh, in the kingdom of God. So let me find it here. Acts 15. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild the ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. 
And so the key points he was using, of course, were David's throne has been restored. Jesus has poured his spirit on the Gentile nation. And so therefore, yes, we are going to include the Gentiles uh, in what formerly would not have been considered to be the, the, the kingdom of God, the nation of, of Israel. All righty. Jonah, and I heard Travis talking to Austin or to uh, Axel about Jonah a few minutes before the Sunday school began. I thought, okay, well, Axel's already got the lesson. Uh, he, he, again, was the, uh, the uh, only other prophet writing from the northern kingdom, uh, but I put from in quotes because, of course, he went to Nineveh somewhat reluctantly. Nineveh uh, was the capital of Assyria, and Assyria at that time was home of probably one of, you know, some of the cruelest rulers that, that the world had known up to that point. If you, if you read what some of the kings of Assyria did to their enemies, their captives, and even their own people that were showing discontent with the way they were being ruled, uh, it's, it's some pretty gruesome uh, stuff. Uh, but no, Jonah in particular, remember I said Nahum also uh, prophesied to Assyria, which is much later. Much later. Jonah, had a little bit, had, Jonah had more success uh, with Nineveh than uh, Nahum did. But it's unique among the prophetic books for two primary reasons. Uh, and it's because it's, it's not really so much uh, God talking through Jonah, it's primarily a narrative about Jonah. And that's why yeah, it's, it's more like some of the narratives that we read in some of the other historical books uh, in, the, in the Bible. It's also unique that he was commissioned uh, to go to a foreign nation, which none of the other prophets that we read about were, were asked to do. And of course, we know that Nineveh repented and things were okay uh, for uh, a while. The book doesn't directly claim authorship for Jonah, uh, it, it doesn't start out, you know, a lot of the books in the first two sentences, you know, who wrote it. Uh, it doesn't claim it, but if you go back to 2 Kings 14 and read what it's saying there, it's referring to him, and it pretty much places him in a context. Uh, and so we, we claim uh, that, that he wrote that. And, of course, the big debate and what Travis was talking to Axel about, he said, you know, it's not a story. You'll hear, you'll hear people say that this is the story uh, of Jonah. Uh, Jonah uh, is not a story. A, sto a story is, histori is historically neutral. That's, that's what the, the distinction we would make. Um, and so it, it, it's, not, uh, it's not just a story. It's, it's admittedly one of the more difficult to wrap your arms around and believe literally stories. But really, what what really brings it home is if you look, if if, if you remember, uh, and we'll go quickly to Matthew twelve thirty nine and forty, and this is where the Pharisees were demanding a sign uh, from Jesus, and Jesus says, "But he answered and said to them." An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
So if Jesus is using the story of Jonah to, as a precursor and to illustrate uh, a, the similar uh, episode that he will or go through, or the, the ordeal that he will suffer through, uh, it, it more or less, at least in most people's minds, takes away the fact that this was just some fable that was meant to illustrate uh, something. As I said, squelches the non-historical relevance. Uh, Jonah, as we all know, did do his best uh, to avoid Nineveh, but he comes to accept God's determination to spare what was at that time admittedly known as the cruelest city in the world. So he went, and I suppose if, if, you know, if it was common knowledge as to what the kings of Assyria did to people that they were not pleased with, I think any of us probably would have been reluctant uh, to go to Nineveh too. Uh, and of course, we can't lose sight of the fact that less than 40 years later, uh, Assyria literally wiped Israel off the map. If you look at the table on the front, um, and then they, they moved on to Judah too. Uh, in 701 BC, they weren't quite as successful in eradicating the southern kingdom. Uh, but so they, they, re, they repented, uh, but within a generation, uh, they were back to their old ways and, and Nahum deals largely with that uh, in his book. All right, now we're gonna move on to Joel and Obadiah, uh, which these two are very difficult to date uh, because in many of the books of the Bible, you'll know that, you know, when Quirinius, when Quirinius was governor uh, in the fifth year of the reign of so-and-so, uh, or they'll, they'll talk about historical events. So either by naming rulers or by naming historical events, which can easily be dated, most of the dates on that table on the first page are fairly accurate. Joel and Obadiah, not so much, uh, particularly uh, Obadiah, but we'll get to that uh, in a minute. Uh, generally, these books are dated in the context of the Masoretic ordering for Travis, who's not listening to me, he's texting. So. Uh, but but the, 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 Masoret, the Masoretic text, I'm sure it's church business, so don't let me stop you. But the Masoretic text uh, is the 24-book Hebrew Bible. Um, and so, uh, you know, and, and Robertson, of course, says that, as I said before, these books were not ordered uh, in, by divine inspiration. And so if you look, compare the Masoretic text with the Septuagint, uh, they're ordered differently. So we, we certainly can't, the, the books are not ordered chronologically, as you can see from the table, and they're not ordered according to some other method because there are different texts used by different groups of people that place them in a different order. Joel anticipates several uh, consecutive actions in God's working of salvation. Uh, th this, um, the other reason, they, the other way, so anyway, by the way, uh, the dating for Joel that they place on it relies mostly uh, where it is, canonical position, uh, historical allusions, they don't name anything, but they kind of refer in passing to things that happened before, um, and linguistic elements. So there was a style of writing, you know, 
it's just like, you know, we, we find it hard to read Old English, but we know about when those things were written because of the way they were written, and that's how they're dating uh, Joel. This is also, it's, it's pre-exilic, so, but, but the, Joel is not hammering away on the fact that you will be exiled because the judgment that he's speaking of relates to the plague of locusts that descend on the land. Uh, just as with exilic prophecy, God certainly issues a call to repent uh, and return. And as with most of the other prophets, there is an anticipation, uh, essentially a promise, if you will, of uh, being restored. And Joel is dealing much broader. He's talking about all the nations of the world are judged. There is thought that it's possible that Joel is actually the, er the earliest of all the prophets, primarily because he does not talk about the exile, the three, the three major things. You remember the, the, the Assyrian invasion, the Babylonian invasion, and the restoration. Joel does not deal uh, with all that at all. Assyria or Babylon are mentioned not at all in Joel. So, you know, this, this was, and like I said, he's not talking about the fact you're going to be displaced. He's saying there's going to be a plague of locusts that's going to come down and pretty much uh, wipe you clean. Uh, Joel's role, though, uh, in prophesying or anticipating the new covenant of Pentecost is clearly established. Uh, and I put some excerpts there. Uh, it was uttered through the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord uh, will be saved. If, I, if, if you remember, when I, I'm not big on discussion questions because I know that Travis and other people will chime in anyway. Uh, if there was going to be a discussion question, and we do not have time to get into this in great length, unless Travis has a concise, clear answer, the question would be, who's everyone? Because, of course, we're Presbyterians. We adhere to the doctrine of election. And so it says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How does that square with the doctrine of election? You have a short answer? Yes. Okay. Everyone means everyone. Anyone. It's the free offer of the gospel. Okay. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And so, we're, so the, the assumption is if you're not elect, you're not going to call on the name of the Lord. Uh, okay. See? I told I told you. That's why we evangelize. That's, uh, I told you Travis would have a short answer. All righty. Very good. Lastly, Obadiah. Uh, this is by far and away the toughest to date. It's also the shortest of the prophetic books, 21 verses. It's all about Edom, which is the national embodiment of Esau. So if you look on the map on the front, is that where, is that where Paul went? Is that the area where Paul went after he uh, had his Damascus experience and spent three years? Didn't he head south into Arabia or someplace? No? Huh? No, no, that was just, that was just something that was in the back of my head. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't take a look at that, but, but uh, you know, so, so th this is where Esau's tribe, if you will, that's where those people. Uh, yes, yeah, southeast of Israel. Okay. Uh, 
and, and the significance of the whole Jacob, Esau, and the ensuing line uh, is, is highlighted uh, throughout the book of the prophets because we're going to start with the Genesis narrative and in Malachi, uh, the last prophetic book, uh, it, it talks about this, this lineage uh, also. The date, there is a date on the table. You're going to find a lot of disagreement uh, on this. The best clue as to the date is tied to the Edomite assault on Jerusalem that you read about in verses 10 to 14 of Obadiah. Uh, there were four significant invasions uh, of Jerusalem in Old Testament history that we know of. So it speaks of one, but it doesn't tell us clearly which one. But according to the scholars, only two of the four fit the narrative, uh, including the Babylon, and, and one of the two is the Babylonian invasion in 586. However, there is no mention in Obadiah of a total destruction of the city and the temple. And the captives that whoever invaded in this narrative, the captives that they took were taken to the southwest, not east towards where Babylon would have been. So the best guess is that this was likely speaking of an invasion by the Philistines and the Arabians, which, was to, which were to the west of Israel between 848 and 841 BC. And you can read more about that in Second Chronicles 21. So that's when we think it happened. And so there's, there's four, three major, actually, themes in Obadiah. Uh, the guilt of Edom, uh, they were punished due to their pride and their mistreatment of God's people because they failed. They, they, they considered them nominally part of God's people, but they failed to defend Jerusalem against the invaders. Uh, indeed, they killed some of the people that were fleeing Jerusalem ahead of the invaders and others they captured and turned over to the people that were invading Jerusalem. So, uh, yeah, they, they definitely were, were guilty. Uh, the judgment of Edom, uh, it occurs on the day of the covenant Lord, and this is based on Exodus where it talks about an eye for an eye. When we were studying Romans, I think it was 12, uh, it was mentioned that an eye for an eye is not to be taken on an individual basis. The eye for an eye was talking more about groups. So as groups of people deal with my people, I will deal, says the Lord, with those groups of people. Uh, so it was used to manage groups of people, not individuals. Uh, just as Edom has done to Judah, so it will be done to Edom. Uh, Obadiah 18 says there will be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Uh, the consequences of, of Edom's judgment uh, Mount Zion, which is loosely talking about Jerusalem and, and you know, the, the, the Israelites. There will be deliverance. Uh, God's redemption for his people has always, I guess if you stop to think about it, it's always meant judgment upon those who are not for the Lord or either for him uh, or against him. And so every portion of land at that point will return to the people uh, of the Lord. It's it is suggested by some uh, that Obadiah in its entirety explains Amos 9.12, which is why it follows Amos, even though it was probably written significantly earlier. That's, that's one conjecture. Um, in, in Amos 9.12, it, it talks about the restoration of Israel. It says that they may possess 
the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord. So even, even these people who have been particularly nasty towards the people of the Lord can be restored uh, through Christ uh, as the Messiah. Obadiah 21, the, the absolute last verse uh, of the book. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So, wow, two minutes to spare. So that's a quick run through through the first five books, the, the, pre, the pre-exilic prophets in the early 8th century. Uh, next, next time we'll deal with the late 8th century, then we'll move into the 7th century, then we'll move into the actual exile, and then we'll spend two weeks going through the restoration. So that's kind of what's in store for the next almost uh, two months, uh, and then we'll get back to Robinson's, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's placing all of these books in context, and then he'll more or less tie it together for us in the final two or three chapters that we can look forward to um, just prior to the holidays, I guess. Alrighty, any questions or comments? Yes. Yes. No, you're, you're, I agree totally, and, and it's the same for me. I remember trying to, you know, some people will try to put together a list of how to read through the Bible chronologically. It, it doesn't work. I mean, everybody's, I mean, multiple books are writing about the same things at the same time. Um, so, Travis, I, you know, I, I agree totally. If you can put things into the context of those three major events that happened to the people of Israel, I, th- I think it does help clarify. It makes the Old Testament readings uh, a lot easier, a lot more fun. I mean, it's like, all right. anything else? All righty, well, let's pray. Father, once again, we are grateful for your word. We're 